electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. John has the morning off. Today, new rules in China send tech stocks in China lower again. It's time. Is it time to join the hedge funds and exit that trade? Plus, the latest on a major data breach at Timo. What we know about a hack that may have impacted up to 100 million customers. And then later, how America's tech giants could fall. Morgan Stanley, D, making the bear case. But we start with another sharp sell-off in Chinese stocks, as Carl mentioned. Big tech companies in China shed more than $50 billion in market cap yesterday after new rules aimed at curbing anti-competitive behavior were announced. And they're down again today here in the U.S. Baba, Tencent, Baidu, as you can see, they are all in the red by about 10 percent each. The new measures ban businesses from faking sales stats, posting misleading customer reviews and hiding negative comments and platforms. They can't use data or other algorithms to influence customer choices. Today, we also got a peek into the funds that actually bought shares and are exposed to Didi, like Tiger Global. That stock is actually up about 4% today, but it is down more than 40% since its June IPO. SEC filings reveal funds, including Soros, Tiger Global, and Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund were investors as of the end of Q2. New headlines that operations at the company have slowed dramatically. Also worth mentioning, Tencent Music, you can see on your screen right there, down nearly 12% uh, after revenue fell short of estimates, and that is despite a big increase in paid subscribers. And Carl, the pain continues. There's been this idea, especially, you know, across the world here in the U.S. and China, that consumers and users are willing to trade privacy for convenience. But the key in China is that's really started to change uh, with the public increasingly calling for more protection. Some users likening it to running naked with their data, you know, being exploited. And the question is, though, do you want the government to control that data or do you want the tech giants? And clearly Beijing is being proactive on this. And before it's too late, before the tech giants have it all, they're getting involved and saying, you know, we're going to crack down on this. And the question is, when does it end? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, we, I mean, we've tried to make clear on this show, D, that we're probably in the early innings at the very least. We've had John Chambers say things are going to get bumpier before they get better. We've talked about the amount of wealth that's been destroyed among China's millionaires and billionaires and sort of the social mission, at least that the Chinese government believes that they're on. And you put all of that together and it, it really comes as no surprise that Chair Gensler at the SEC once again today warning mm-hmm. people about the risks of investing in Chinese companies. 
Right. There's both sides. Right. And I, I like to look at the Chinese stocks that are actually outperforming because I think it maybe provides some insights. We've talked about some of the hard tech sectors like semis, which we know that Beijing does want to boost up. SMIC has not been hit so hard, but also Weibo. This is a social media platform similar to Twitter over there. And I was looking, it's up about 40 percent over the last 12 months. And the government holds a one percent stake here. And I wonder how key that is, Carl, as we talk about, you know, another huge company like ByteDance getting, you know, a 1% reportedly stake from the CCP, the Chinese government. Does that protect a little bit? And is this a trend that we'll continue to see as more government ownership? And what does that do to the investment equation, yeah. especially for Americans that, that, thinking about that, these names? It's a great catch to see if that adds an, an added layer of complexity to this story, which we continue to walk into the office every morning and find out more about. Meanwhile, this uh, massive metaverse miss, Roblox, down this morning uh, after reporting a miss on second quarter bookings actually was down in the pre-market, recovering a bit here. That measure of sales after the bell on Thursday. Despite the miss, bookings are still up 127 percent year on year. And the game developer saw an 8 percent increase in DAUs in July from the prior month. Some are still bullish on the space. The Round Hill Ball Metaverse ETF, which tracks Roblox and other gaming companies announcing this morning, it has surpassed $50 million in assets under management less than six weeks after launching the fund. And joining us this morning, Metaverse ETF founder, Amazon, Amazon Studios, former head of strategy, Matthew Ball joins us. Matthew, good to have you back. Thanks for the time. Good to see you again. Uh, we're getting all of these sort of very near-term crosswinds about whether or not consumers were going out more versus uh, being sent back inside because of the Delta variant. I assume that's not how you're approaching uh, Roblox in general. No, I actually found that the past quarter was really encouraging. If you take a look at the comps on a Q2 to Q2 basis, we were at the depths of the lockdown in the United States last year. Despite that, we're seeing that DAUs are up 30%, and most importantly, spending per user is up 120%. That's encouraging as to the resilience of this platform, its popularity within culture today, and also shows galloping gains to revenue versus engagement hours. I wonder, of the, of the companies you track that have verbalized their mission around the metaverse, where mm -hmm. Roblox ranks in terms of the, the efficacy of the message and I guess the relevance of the metaverse to their overall model? That's a great question. When Roblox filed its S1 late last year, that there had only been five prior mentions of the term metaverse. In that filing, Roblox used it 13 times. In the subsequent nine months, it's been mentioned over 60 times in S1 filings, in Edgar filings. And so we're certainly seeing that there is an advantage to coming out first. They have the dominant mind share. They probably own the message more than any other platform. But most importantly, investors are encouraged by the fact that it is an end-to-end -end metaverse service. They have the engine, the technology, the payments and identity service, but they also own content distribution as well. And that's a really compelling proposition for anyone who considers gaming to be the next big social platform. Hey, Matthew, it's Deirdre. I wonder how that 19 times compares to uh, Zuckerberg's mentions of Metaverse mm -hmm. on the Facebook earnings call. Uh, I'll look it up during the break. But I wanted to ask you about this sort of China connection, because I know that you've talked about Tencent before, and Tencent has actually called itself the closest thing to the Metaverse. But I wonder, we just talked about the Chinese crackdown on gaming, and Tencent has certainly been affected by this as well. Does that threaten its role? And do you hold Tencent in the ETF? 
Tencent is one of the primary holdings. If you take a look at the global landscape of virtual simulations, of games, of users in virtual worlds, there's no one who reaches more players on a more regular basis and with a richer and more intimate connection into the content ecosystem. Everyone from Epic Games to Crafton, maker of PUBG, to C Limited, maker of Free Fire, is an investment company or partner of Tencent. And so to the extent in which having interconnection in virtual worlds is critical, Tencent probably has the closest path towards that. But now we're starting to see some of the regulatory or local environment limitations that may preclude them from doing that. The extent to which the CCP prevents Tencent from deploying a unified identity system, prevents Tencent from proliferating data from one experience to another, consumer spending, all of that is going to be an impediment to building up a ecosystem comparable to Roblox's today. Right. So does Facebook benefit here? Are they sort of licking their chops and looking at the regulatory action in China and seeing that this could provide an opening? Uh, I just looked, by the way, 20 Mm -hmm. times Metaverse was mentioned on the last Facebook earnings call. (laughs) Certainly, there's been a run-up. I think the metaverse, in some regard, is just a convenient catch-all term for the very many R&D projects at every big tech company, whether that's brain-to-machine interfaces, XR, VR, game engines, virtual assets, and anything crypto. And so I expect that we'll see the term come up more frequently. Even Sinclair, in discussing its forthcoming regional sports network platform, described it as a metaverse. And so I wouldn't focus too much on how the term is being used nor how frequently, but what the products are in market. That's a good way to discuss your point on Facebook, which is irrespective of whether or not there's a crackdown in China or what DAUs look like at Roblox, Facebook's first and most important next step is to build a virtual space that attracts developers and attracts users. Horizon thus far is not doing that. Interesting, Matthew. I wonder, um, this may be a bit of a pedestrian question, but is there a seasonality to user uh, engagement. I'm thinking about kids who are going back to school. I don't know whether their mind share, uh, their bandwidth shrinks relative to, you know, homework versus Roblox or vice versa. And I guess to that point, does it then drive uh, the developer rate? Should Should we be looking for seasonality in some of these names? There's always some degree of seasonality. If you take a look at the video industry, which is by far the most common allocation of leisure time in the United States, you'll see that the second quarter and to some extent the third quarter are the lowest for total TV time in the United States compared to Q4 and Q1. That largely holds in gaming, but I think irrespective of whether or not kids return to school in person or at home, it's more important to understand that every successive generation is gaming more than the last. We see that with Y versus X, Generation Z versus Y, and now Alpha versus Z. I think irrespective of the short-term cyclicality or seasonality of the industry, the bull thesis is really that most time in the United States for leisure is spent on video and gaming is rapidly devouring that. If you take a look at video specifically on a demographic basis, the average person age 50 up spends six and a half hours per day watching video. When you get to sub 18, it's less than two hours per day. Part of that reflects different allocations of leisure time, differences in total amount. But for the most part, if you're under 15, you're spending more time playing games and video, and that's likely to persist. Uh, Fascinating. Uh, Just fascinating. And of course, it's nice to have uh, this kind of metric, uh, these metrics to look look through that lens. Uh, Matthew, always great stuff. Thanks so much.
Matthew Ball Thank talking you. some Roblox this morning. And be sure to catch the Roblox CEO tonight with Jim on Mad Money. That's uh, Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We do want to turn to Walmart this morning and what we learned on the e-commerce front today. Our Courtney Reagan's watching that has some results. Hey, Court. Hey, Carl, good to see you. So Walmart's comparable sales coming in stronger than expected all in. But this quarter, it was stores, not e-commerce, that led the way. So Walmart's U.S. comparable sales did grow 5.2% with a 6% growth in transactions. However, that net U.S. e-commerce number grew just 6%. Look at this bar chart and see how much smaller that increase is than what investors are used to from this U.S. net e-commerce number. The same quarter last year saw sales grow 97%. The retailer is now expecting global e-commerce to hit $75 billion this year. That's a number they don't normally give us, and that is just its own goods. So X marketplace goods, not a GMV number, a pure sales number for Walmart. When I asked Chief Financial Officer Brett Biggs about the slow growth of U.S. net e-com, he said, quote, there are going to be quarters where stores lead the way and quarters where online leads the way. And over the last two years, e-commerce sales have doubled. Now, Big said that he focuses on the total revenue or the total sales number. And that total revenue number is impressive. This quarter, in fact, the third biggest quarterly revenue ever for Walmart and the highest non-holiday quarter ever when you're looking at revenue. Another key growth area for Walmart is its advertising business. It calls it Walmart Connect. And the retailer said that ad sales growth was strong globally with sales nearly doubling in the U.S. versus last year with active advertisers up 170%. Morgan Stanley estimates Walmart's ad business will hit $4 billion by the year 2025. Shares of Walmart relatively flat higher by just about a half a percent on the total results. Deirdre? Court, thank you. And staying with e-commerce, also just want to direct our audience to look at shares of Wish. That stock has fallen over 30 percent just over the last two days. The company is saying that demand slowed with the reopening of the economy and a return to physical shopping. Users are disengaging with the site. Now they said they're looking to make changes to the platform to drive engagement, but they warned that they do not expect these new initiatives to contribute meaningfully to positive year-over-year results before the second half of 2022. Shares are up today, though, about 2%. They have been beaten down, though. Keep in mind, this is a recent IPO. The stock now worth just a quarter of what it was at the start of the year. So up this morning, but down over 60% since the start of the year. Uh, Meanwhile, speaking of stocks that have been beaten down, Uber and Opendoor, both laggards in 2021 as well. Opendoor has been cut in half since its February highs. Uber back below where it opened on IPO day, $45.00. That is not stopping our next guest. Oppenheimer's Jason Hafstein was rated the number one sell-side analyst in 2020 by tip ranks. In his top two picks, Uber and Opendoor, Appaloosa's David Tepper also revealed a new position in Uber. Joining us now is Oppenheimer's Managing Director of Internet Equity Research, Jason Hafstein. Jason, good morning, and uh, thanks for being with us. Now, Dara Khosrowshahi's strategy over at Uber has been one of M&A over organic growth, so deal-making. But when it comes at least to the delivery side, it's being beat by DoorDash in terms of market share and profitability. How long should investors give him to prove out this strategy? I mean, to some extent, they are fighting with, with kind of one arm tied behind their back. The thesis on Uber is that they will have the best super app. So the idea is, you know, your rides, your delivery, convenience, 
alcohol, pharmacy, delivery, et cetera. And because you know, the people are not going to work on a regular basis, they're not going to meetings, et cetera, you're just not getting the leverage in the business from a, uh, a mobility standpoint. And we think as a result, DoorDash really has kind of exceeded them from a, a loyalty program, um, their Dash Pass product. We think kind of after Labor Day, while we do understand that people are concerned with returning to the office and Delta variant, we do expect um, cities to look a bit more normal um, in September and October. And we think that will go a long way to kind of uh, what Uber can offer its customers. When you say, Jason, that it has one arm tied behind its back, are you referring to the mobility ride sharing business? Correct. Exactly. So, for example, isn't that, the idea would be. Yeah. But I just sorry, I just wonder, isn't that a hedge? I mean, if ride sharing comes back in a big way, delivery is going to soften a little bit. People are going to be going back out to restaurants, something that we've already seen in both Uber and DoorDash's results. Correct. So so you just made another kind of positive point that there is a natural balance in their business. So to the extent that um, they are seeing very good growth, albeit not as good growth as DoorDash in food delivery. And if the economy kind of starts to go back to normal and food delivery slows, th- there is an offset. But what we focused on is the idea of Uber should have the best loyalty program. The idea that you use it, um, you can use points that you generate for rides to order food, vice versa. Uh, if you join one of their subscription programs, do you get, you know, are you getting rides benefits? Are you getting food benefits? And so, right, you know, with, a, with the way the economy has been basically the last year, they really have not been able to tap um, what was called the, like the Uber Pass, right? The, many of us turned off our Uber Pass September of 2020 and haven't turned it back on. And so, you know, as a result of that, I think that's where DoorDash has really been able to kind of run with the ball on their loyalty program. And we think after Labor Day, Uber will be in a much more competitive position um, with them itself as a super app in the loyalty program. And then separately, you know, compared to Lyft, we look at Uber's ability to add more drivers. Uh, in the quarter, we saw they grew driver downloads for their app 52%. Lyft was 23%. Uh, we think they're basically, you know, at 2x um, kind of where, where Lyft is as far as adding adding uh, drivers. And that's a big concern for people, right? Like how effective will Uber platform work when consumers go back to work? Oh, Jason, that's interesting. I, I do want to ask you whether or not, you know, we always talk about Disney as being a, a hedge between a reopening and a reclosing of the economy. The idea that Uber is the same thing between rides and eats, is that is that false? Is that like is that, is that a straw man narrative that they, that one has to suffer at the expense of the other? I mean, generally in e-commerce, you see that when consumers try something new, even I always say like that you don't put the genie back in the bottle. So to the extent that that covid brought more consumers to try food delivery, of course, they're going to go back to eating at restaurants. But the kind of new run rate gets set higher. So it's definitely been a positive for food delivery. Um, again, it made a lot of restaurants take food delivery more seriously, really think seriously about that as a, an avenue of business, what platforms they use, how they integrate into the kitchen, their kind of internal supply chain, et cetera. So, look, it's definitely been a positive. But look, I think Uber, while the market's not giving it credit, it does look like it's a much better natural hedge. I would say the reason why DoorDash is doing so well from a stock price perspective is grocery delivery. 
Um, I think you've got big players, particularly in in, in uh, Walmart and Amazon, who plan to be big players in that. I don't think you've seen um, Amazon competing as effectively in grocery delivery because of the challenges they've had just keeping up with the demand for their overall e-commerce mm-hmm. business. So I think six to nine months from now, I think we're going to be kind of looking back and really saying like, Uber did provide us kind of a great opportunity in the stock price because of some of these temporary headwinds. Yeah, Jason, grocery, the next big battleground. We spoke to Tony Hsu at the end of last week. They're very focused on this area as well. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. We'll ask you next time about about Open Door. Okay, thanks. Coming up next, our next guest has a warning for the investors in Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet. Quote, how America's tech giants could fall and then bury the hatchet. Kathy Wood hits back at that new arc short. A big hour of tech check is just getting started. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Getting a gut check on Monday.com, the software company reporting results for the first time since going public back in June. Billings better than expected, and both gross and operating margins rose year over year. The street certainly giving their nod of approval. Shares up nearly 25 percent and nearly double, Carl, its IPO price of $155. That's trading above 300 today. Uh, yeah, what, what a chart. Uh, meantime, D, what if today's top tech giants could actually fall? Our next guest points to the historical cycling out of the top tech companies by market cap as evidence that big tech may not always dominate and that regulation can come quick, as China is an example today. And it's all in his latest Financial Times op-ed. Joining us this morning is Rushir Sharma of uh, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Strategist. Rushir, welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me back. Your piece is a great great reminder of sort of the controlled fires that capitalism inevitably brings and that that recycling is is a healthy thing for the long term uh, economy and innovation. But can you just flesh out what you mean when you say that some of these tech giants could be vulnerable one day? Sure. So I went back and looked at the data for the last 50 years, five decades, and found one very interesting pattern, which is that if you look at the top 10 companies in the world by market value at the end of each decade, what you find is that eight, if not nine, of these 10 companies 
tend to be companies that were not in the top 10 in the previous decade. So the 1970s were all dominated by oil giants, uh, 1980s by Japanese bank, 1990s by U.S. tech companies that we have all forgotten about, uh, the 2000s by a lot of emerging market companies. And the last decade has been dominated by these U.S. tech giants. And we all tend to think that this is a permanent state of affairs. But what history tells us is that once you reach such a point where you are among the top 10 companies, the odds are overwhelming that over the next decade, these companies will not only underperform dramatically, but act, actually generate negative returns. And I have no reason to believe that's not likely to happen in the coming decade. Right. Uh, obviously, we can point to so many companies that, that fit that example. I guess the, the obvious question is, how do we know which, which ones are, are in fact vulnerable, right? Is there, is there a way to screen that out? Well, it's very difficult. The only one which has survived over the last three decades in the top 10 list is Microsoft. So my advice here, or as an investor, what I'm doing is I would not allocate much capital at all to the top 10 companies in the world today if I had a five to 10 year time horizon, because I think the probability that you're going to be able to pick that one or maybe two winners out of the top 10 is quite low. And the uh, magnitude of underperformance is huge that these top 10 companies typically rise um, a lot in the last decade. They outperform the broader market by over 300% or something. And then in the subsequent decade, they give up their entire relative outperformance. So that's a huge fall from grace. And I think that something similar could be in store for what we think are these permanent uh, fixtures in our life today. Rishi, I wonder if the pandemic changes anything, could change the course of history. We saw this incredible digital transformation where more people relied on the big tech companies than ever, the so-called fourth industrial revolution, something that Kathy Wood's ARC thesis rests on. Could that change the trajectory? Well, I think what the pandemic has done is that it has accelerated many of the trends that were already playing out before the pandemic. So these trends have been telescoped. And that's why I think some of these top companies have generated a fair amount of outperformance over the last uh, 18 months or so or the start of this decade. So if anything, I think the situation is even more prime now for these companies to underperform from this point because they have already bunched up their returns pretty quickly as the pandemic accelerated the uh, trend of digitization. I think we forget that how saturated some of these markets already may be. Um, you know, take the example of Amazon, uh, that nearly three out of every four households in America already has uh, an Amazon uh, Prime account or so. So I think that the scope for growth of these companies from here is quite limited. And internationally, these companies are finding it pretty hard to penetrate many of these emerging markets where the growth in digitization is really taking off now. Uh, it's a fascinating argument and, and a good reminder to investors, Rashir, even though a lot of these giants that we talk about were actually founded by felling prior giants, but it's something that we have to constantly keep in mind. Great to see you, Rashir Sharma. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. After the break, T-Mobile confirms hackers gained access to its system, but what data was taken? We'll tell you. And we get another reality check, this time on IBM, why Moffat Nathanson says it's a sell. Stay with us.
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. Resetting here at the bottom of the hour. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla. Coming up, why one analyst says you need to drop IBM from your portfolio today. But first, let's get a news update with Rahal Solomon. Morning, Rahal. Hi, Deirdre. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Home Depot, by far the largest loser in the Dow Industrials. The retailer posting profits and revenues above estimates, although same-store sales disappointed. Home Depot shares down about 5% today, but still up roughly 20% this year, which is better than the S&P and rival lows. Retail sales falling more than expected in July. Even online sales dropped. The 1.1% overall decline was driven in large part by falling auto sales, due in part to tight supplies of vehicles. Demand for autos and parts also fueling big increases in industrial production, the largest in four months. Homebuilders' view of the housing market taking a big hit in August, a key index dropping to its lowest level in 13 months, although sales expectations for the next six months do remain unchanged. And shares of Spirit Airlines rebounding from losses of more than 4% this morning. The stock bouncing back after the company said that its massive recent flight disruptions cost the company about $50 million and led to more than 2,800 flight cancellations. Deirdre, the company also saying that it plans to reduce sort of its flight schedule over the next month or so until the end of September, perhaps to uh, avoid further frustration for customers. See? Yeah, that's there. Thank you, Rahel. Time for day two of our reality check series. We're looking at the other side of the street or the rare sell calls on consensus buy stocks. Today, it is International Business Machines, IBM. Our next guest says their vision is more cloudy than cloud. Moffat Nathanson's Lisa Ellis joins us now. Lisa, it's great to have you on. Uh, you note that IBM's current cloud portfolio lags market leaders like Microsoft, AWS, Google. IBM argues, though, that its strategy, hybrid cloud, is uniquely positioned. Uh, take apart that argument for our viewers. Yeah, it's true. I mean, large enterprises are definitely going somewhat in the direction of hybrid clouds. The challenge that IBM has is that that cloud, hybrid cloud portfolio they've got, which is built around the Red Hat acquisition, is just really small. It's a few billion out of, you know, you know, 70, 75 billion in revenue of IBM. And so they've got this little kernel of a business um, uh, built around Red Hat that is in hybrid cloud and is doing fine. I would say fine, not fantastic, um, but just within, you know, it's a little bit like trying to turn the Titanic. It's just a very small piece within a much broader portfolio of IBM, uh, much of which is in structural decline and actually being negatively impacted by the cloud. Right. So talk a little bit about IBM's capital allocation strategy under former CEO Ginny Rometty, lots of buybacks and, you know, dividend increases. However, under Arvind Krishna, they've been investing more back into the business, however, very small in terms of CapEx compared to the other cloud leaders that we just mentioned. Do you agree, though, that the proper metric to judge um, IBM's cloud business is CapEx over OpEx? 
Um, I, I don't know, not necessarily in their case, because a lot of their, you know, they're not building out big data centers the same way that an AWS or a Google mm-hmm. is. Their cloud products are more software driven. This is like the Red Hat OpenShift uh, types of products. Um, but free cash flow is a really, really critical metric for IBM because they pay a hefty dividend. They have about $6 billion in cash that goes out the door for a dividend each year. And the real challenge they've been having recently is because they're in the midst of this spinoff of their big data center outsourcing business, they're taking almost $5 billion in restructuring uh, exp- you know, costs associated with that spin, which is pulling their free cash flow dangerously low. Frankly, it's down in the $8, 9000000000 billion range, and they have to cover a $6 billion dividend. So you're just talking about only having two or three billion there, right, available for new investments to try to get, you know, get this business uh, moving again. It's, uh, you know, they're kind of painted into a bit of a corner right now. Yeah, I mean, we've seen other high profile examples uh, of other giants where cash flow became endangered and people started at least to talk about the dividend being endangered. Are you anywhere near that front on IBM? We're not near the danger, no. I mean, I do want to be clear about that. And they've been very clear about their capital allocation priority is protecting that dividend because that's a lot of the investors holding IBM are holding it for that coupon. Um, And, you know, six billion, they've got eight billion or so on the balance sheet, plus they are generating eight to nine billion. So we're not in that really truly dangerous territory where the dividend might be at risk. It's more that they, you know, they're they're at a point now where they can't really do both. So if their priority is paying the dividend, their flexibility to invest in the business to try to kind of catch up with the players like Microsoft and Google and, and Amazon that are way ahead of them in cloud is much more limited. And they've been clear their choice is the dividend, but the implication of that is that the likelihood that they'll be able to return to meaningful revenue growth is much more limited. This is a business that's just much more likely to kind of tread water, sort of stable, modestly declining revenues and just keep paying the dividend. Mm -hmm. Lisa, we talked about cloud. I want to ask you about another next generation technology that IBM likes to talk about, and that's Watson, artificial intelligence. It was early, but not particularly successful. Now you have all of these startups in the enterprise AI space like C3.ai, Palantir, UiPath. Is IBM still a player here? They definitely have some good technology with Watson. Like you said, they were very early in this this space and have had a lot of difficulty commercializing it. Um, uh, So I think they've struggled. You know, we've seen them start to, you know, consider even selling off pieces of their technology there because, Uh, While they have strong underlying AI capability, what they've had difficulty with is figuring out how to create a product out of it that's commercialized, that people are really buying, partly because they've done these big industry-specific full solutions like Watson, you know, Watson Health, whereas many competitors have chosen a more modular approach where they're just breaking apart kind of individual pieces of AI Mm -hmm. like voice recognition or, you know, particular types of big data analytics and kind of, you know, pulling those capabilities apart and selling them just as kind of underlying piece parts, different strategy. And that has sort of proven so far to be the more successful strategy in AI. Um, You know, so IBM's like struggling a little where I think they've got a really strong 
you know, they still do have a very strong R&D organization and strong underlying intellectual property in a lot of these areas, but have had difficulty kind of getting that out into commercial, uh, you know, commercial products. Right. And then they sort of face the, dis- the question of whether they should sort of sell off some of that IP um, versus keeping it in-house. Mm-hmm. Lisa, as always, thank you for your insights. Lisa Ellis, Moffitt Nathanson. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Still ahead, Jeff Bezos is unhappy with yet another government contract. We're going to explain. Plus, is Palantir paranoid? More Tech Check continues after this. Watch Tesla this morning. It's down again today after that 4% drop on Monday. Uh, News of that government probe into the autopilot system is the catalyst there. Although today, Bernstein goes the other way. Tony Saganaki takes his price target up to 300. He does maintain his underperformed rating. He notes the stock has underperformed year to date. They're hosting an event around the AI strategy D on Thursday. But that's going to be your first trip below the 50 and 200 day for the first time since late July. Yep, shares at 660. And coming up, the latest on a massive hack at T-Mobile Plus. Watch App Levin. Morgan Stanley upgrades the stock this morning, uh, taking shares up. We'll get to check on it right now. 6%. We'll be right back. T-Mobile confirming it suffered a massive data breach, one that potentially leaves millions of customers' personal information at risk. Our Eamon Javers has more on what at least we know at this moment. Morning, Eamon. Yeah, what we know and what we don't know, Carl. Take a look at what we know right now, which is relatively limited. We do know uh, that there is a hacker who's been active on the dark web, based on our research, who's going by the handle Subvert, uh, who has posted some claims about stolen data related to T-Mobile on a dark website known as Raid Forums. That's a place uh, where hackers come together to buy and sell and talk about stolen data. The first claim uh, we see on the dark web uh, was made on August 14th. So we know at least that much. There is a hacker who is out there making these claims about stolen T-Mobile data. Here's what T-Mobile had to say about all of this in their statement in which they did confirm uh, there was some kind of a breach. They say, we have determined that unauthorized access to some T-Mobile data occurred. However, we have not yet determined that there is any personal customer data involved. So uh, T-Mobile saying an, uh, some unauthorized access, but they don't effectively know exactly what was stolen here. If anything, they say their investigation will now take some time. Uh, What we know about this is that the hacker is out there negotiating prices uh, to sell this alleged data uh, to any buyers who might be interested. What we don't know, Carl, and this is the key, is how much data was taken here uh, and how much of it is T-Mobile data and how much of it is real. We just simply don't know that at that point, but there is a hacker out there making these claims and offering to sell this data, Carl. Back over to you guys. Interesting, Eamon. You know, we're getting used to this, uh, this kind of episode now, but sometimes um, the victim of the hack is able to come and tell consumers exactly what's been exposed. Other times we're left hanging a little bit longer. This is clearly an example of that. But in general, what determines whether or not a company can make a full disclosure or, or something more clouded like this? 
Well, sometimes it's tactical. They want to make sure that they understand what they're dealing with. And also in the negotiations with the hacker, they don't want to reveal too much about what they know about what's been stolen. So not to give away too much more to the hacker. Uh, but in some cases, they simply have trouble determining what was exfiltrated from their own systems. And that can be a complicated process because the data can leak out, uh, you know, a hundred different ways. Uh, so the big technical challenge initially is just getting your arms around what exactly was stolen. And then there's a tactical challenge on top of that of deciding what you want to reveal in the midst of a negotiation or an effort uh, to reconstitute some of the data. So both of those things could be going on here right now. Uh, T-Mobile says they're investigating. Uh, we do know this hacker is out there trying to sell something on the dark web. The question is whether there's going to be any buyers and whether there's anything real to sell. Right. And no surprise for a few, uh, I believe, six Bitcoin. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Um, we know you'll keep us posted. Still to come on the show, Michael Burry of The Big Short makes a big bet against ARK. Kathy Wood's response is next. Michael Burry thinks the ARK Innovation Fund is the latest poorly put together Jenga puzzle. In a filing released Monday, Burry of the Big Short fame disclosed a $31 million position against Kathy Wood's benchmark fund. Another in a flurry of bearish calls against Wood and ticker ARKK this summer. We told you not long ago, Tuttle Capital Management filed the short ARK ETF. That was last week with the SEC, which would track the inverse performance of the ARK Innovation Fund. While Barron's notes that short interest on that ETF is now at a record high. Wood's pandemic performance last year was highly publicized, with ARC more than doubling in 2020, thanks to big positions in Tesla, Zoom, and some of the other high-growth, high-momentum names. Although the ETF has struggled to gain any ground in 2021, it's still in the red since the start of the year, down about 7%. Kathy Wood, or Aunt Kathy, took to Twitter this morning to respond to this story, writing in part, quote, I do not believe that he, Michael Burry, understands the fundamentals that are creating explosive growth and investment opportunities in the innovation space. Worth noting, Carl, that the filing also revealed that Burry upped his short position in Tesla with his put options there, net worth about $730 million. Uh, we definitely pay attention to Burry's uh, trades, that's for sure, D. Uh, meantime, speaking of 13Fs, Leslie Picker's looking at what we saw in terms of tech stocks and fund managers in the last quarter, including that big drawdown in SPACs. Hey, LP. Hey, Carl, that's right. There have been a lot of movements as far as tech goes, as far as SPACs go. Lots of fund managers we studied pairing back or dissolving stakes in a wide variety of SPACs, even ones managed by their investing peers. Baupost had been a big buyer of special purpose acquisitions acquisition vehicles, but in the second quarter, Seth Klarman's firm sold about 20% of its stake in Pershing Square Tontine. More on that deal in a moment. He dissolved small stakes in several others that he had recently acquired. David Einhorn's Greenlight, too, paired back its exposure to SPACs, all of which were very small, diversified stakes as well. Corvex had a sprinkling of SPACs in its portfolio, but sold out of names like Altamar Acquisition Corp., Hudson Executive Investment Corp., and VG Acquisition Corp., all of which merged with their respective targets during the quarter. On the tech front, Chase Coleman's Tiger Global boosting stakes in traditional stay-at-home tech plays, namely Zoom, DoorDash, Peloton, and Shopify. Appaloosa, led by David Tepper, selling down ownership in a broad swath of tech names. Alibaba, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, Micron, and Twitter. Just a reminder, though, guys, these moves capture where the portfolio stood as of six weeks ago. They may have changed in the interim period, guys.
I hope you can help our viewers understand this lawsuit against uh, Bill Ackman's SPAC and, and the implications for how SPACs may be regulated, depending on how that decision could go. Yes, yeah, so this is a really interesting question. I think you're speaking to the heart of what this lawsuit really is about. Now, of course, Ackman SPAC, Pershing Square, Tontine Holdings, largest SPAC to date, raised about $4 billion when it went public last year. Now, there's a new lawsuit uh, filed in the U.S. District Court in the Southern District of New York, uh, alleging basically that this SPAC should be regulated as an investment company, not an operating company. The reason being is that Pershing Square Tondine Holdings, according to the lawsuit, uh, owns and invests in U.S. Treasuries and money market funds that own U.S. Treasuries. As a result, it should be uh, regulated as an investment company. Now, that idea is something that pretty much every SPAC does, where they take the money from investors that they raise in the IPO, they hold it in a trust, they invest it in, you know, very safe, liquid assets like U.S. Treasuries while they wait for the merger to be completed and as they search for the merger target. So that is what people are looking at with regard to this lawsuit this morning and wondering, you know, if they are successful, if they do get the court to agree to uh, determine Tontine to be a um, an investment company as opposed to a SPAC, what does that mean for all the SPACs out there who do take in this cash investment, invest in investment securities? Does it kind of throw the entire model to the wind? Uh, that would certainly be a huge decision. I'm not so sure it will ultimately come down to that, though, guys. Right. Certainly getting a lot of eyeballs today, though, uh, Leslie, that's for sure. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that help on two fronts, our Leslie Picker. By the way, a reminder, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Peck Tech Check is back in a moment. Now in semi-retirement, Jeff Bezos spends his time parsing through government contracts to find out exactly where he's been wronged. Just months after the Jedi fight, Bezos and his space company Blue Origin are suing another federal agency. This time, it's NASA over the decision to award the building of its moon lander solely to Elon Musk's SpaceX. <laughs> that contract worth just about $3 billion. Not quite the size of a Jedi D, but certainly enough to get his attention. Yeah, remember Uno? I'm looking at this meme up on our screen. I haven't seen those cards in a while. Uh, one more thing before we go, Carl, and that is uh, perhaps you can call it paranoia. At Palantir, Alex Carp and the company disclosing a purchase of over $50 million in 100-ounce gold bars last quarter, adding, quote, such purchase will initially be kept in a secure third-party facility located in the northeastern United States. Carl? John is off this morning in protest over Fort Knox not being considered. <laughs> I did not write that joke. But this day and age, Carl, a software company investing in gold over Bitcoin, moving to Denver over Silicon Valley. They love to be contrarian over at Palantir. Yes. Yes, they do. Worst day for the uh, NAS since uh, July 27. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.